0: Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, the hope and the light of Christ in our lives. We thank you for the fact that even in the midst of afflictions and difficulties, that we can have hope. And Father, I pray that as we open your word this morning, uh, that, uh, Father, that your spirit would do what only he is able to do. Father, my words will fall short upon deaf ears apart from your spirit, awakening hearts and illuminating minds. And so, Father, I pray that as we read your word, as we seek to understand your word, that indeed your spirit would be active in our hearts, would be active in our minds, uh, to fill our minds with truth and the clarity and beauty of that truth, and to awaken an affection in our hearts that would be stirred so that our priorities would be centered upon you. Particularly in this season where we are tempted to center our priorities on anything but you. May your spirit encourage, may your spirit convict, may your spirit illumine, may your spirit awaken. In the moments ahead of us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the first Sunday of Advent traditionally within the life of the church has been known as a Sunday of hope or a Sunday of preparation or a Sunday of expectation and hope always Christian hope particularly always is rooted in something that's taken place in the past, but it's always looking forward to something that will take place in the future. Last year, about this time when my daughter, who's now three and a half, she was about two and a half, um, and we began, as soon as she began to utter words and be able to um, put together pieces of phrases, we began to try and teach our children to pray. And so we're in her, be- I'm in her bedroom one night with her and we're in the rocking chair and we're praying with her and we pray a very simple prayer, right? Thank you God for my mommy and my daddy and the roof over my head and the food in my belly And most of all, God, for Jesus. Amen. So very simple prayer. She's two and a half. She can get some of those words out and string some of those phrases together. And so we're praying there one night and we're praying through the prayer. And thank you, God, for my mommy and daddy. Thank you, God, for my, the, the roof over our head. Thank you, God, for the food in my belly. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Amen. And as soon as we say amen, she looks up at me square in the face and I'm sitting in the rocking chair in her room and her legs are kind of wrapped around me and she's sitting right here eye to eye with me. And she goes, Daddy, where's Jesus? And I say, well, baby, he is sitting next to his daddy in heaven, and he's waiting for the day in which his daddy says, it's time to come back. He's gonna return one day. And when he returns, he's gonna come back, and he's gonna make everything right that is wrong. Everything bad will become good. All death will be undone. And I said, when he comes back, the Bible tells us he's coming back on a white horse and he's gonna defeat all of God's enemies as a king. And she goes, Daddy, as serious, with as much theological astuteness as a two and a half year old can muster, Daddy, I want Jesus to take me on a hayride behind his horse. (laughs) And I said, me too, baby, me too, right? And as she says those words to me about a year ago now, I can remember thinking about the significance of Advent because Advent in the life of the church is always a season of looking back upon the manger, upon the incarnation, but it also historically has been a season of looking forward to the coronation of a king and the return of our God, right? And as she said those words to me, Daddy, I want Jesus to take me on a hayride behind his horse. I thought, she gets it. At two and a half, she gets it. She's waiting for something in the future, not just looking back upon something in the past. She's hoping for something. And oftentimes during this particular season as we ramp up toward Christmas and as we move through the season of Advent in most of our homes and in most of our churches, we do a phenomenal job of looking back and we sing songs that we're of reflection and we tell stories of reflection and we have little nativities set up in our home as we remember the birth of baby Jesus to the Virgin Mary in our homes and in our churches and in our traditions and in our lives. But unfortunately, oftentimes as we move through this season, we do a pretty poor job of looking forward, of looking out toward the future, of looking with eyes of hope. And so, for instance, we often look back upon Jesus' incarnation as a babe born in a manger, but seldom do we look forward to his coronation as a king who Revelation 1911 tells us will return to judge and make war. We don't often think of that during Christmas, Or during Advent. Often we look back to the angels who appeared in the heavens to announce his birth, but seldom did we look forward to the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses. Revelation 19. 14. Often we look back to the shepherds and kings who visit to worship the incarnate God in the infant Jesus, but seldom do we look forward to joining alongside the throngs of heaven and declaring, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready, Revelation 19, six to seven. Often we look back to the day upon which a child was born and a son was given, but seldom do we look forward to the day in which he will govern the kingdom of this world and reign forever as the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. Isaiah 9, six and Revelation eleven five. Often we look back to the prophecies, promises, and predictions of Jesus' first advent, his first arrival. But seldom do we look forward with anticipation and expectation toward the prophecies, promises, and predictions of his second advent, of his second arrival. And throughout the history of the church, this season was always a season of reflection and expectation. And as we enter into the season of advent together this morning... What I want to do for a moment is to help draw our minds and draw our hearts forward as we enter into this season together. For us to begin thinking during this season of Advent about hope, about what we are waiting for. We enter the season of Advent by looking forward toward the hope of every Christian, every person who trusts in and treasures Jesus above all things has this hope, and there's perhaps no greater text in all the Bible that unpacks the hope that we have as those who trust and treasure Jesus than Romans chapter 8. So I invite you to turn there with me. In Romans chapter 8, we'll begin reading in verse 12, and we'll read down through verse 25 together. If you don't have a copy of the text, it'll be on the screen for you as we read it. Beginning in Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 12, the apostle Paul writes these words, "'So then, brothers,' The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. There's perhaps no other place in all of the scriptures that we have recorded and preserved for us where we find a clearer explanation or a clearer picture of what hope is for the Christian. And so as we enter into this season of Advent together, a season of expectation and anticipation, I want us to enter it by considering what the nature of hope is what the nature of hope is, what the content of our hope is, and the difference that makes in our lives, right? So the first thing that we see in this text in Romans chapter eight is the nature of hope. What is hope? Listen, this is what hope is. Hope is active, certain, and expectant waiting. Hope is active, certain, and expectant waiting. If you look what the apostle Paul says in verses 24 and 25, he says, the nature of hope is waiting patiently for what we do not yet see, but we expect it to come. That's what hope is, he says, is that we're waiting for something that we have not yet seen, that we do not yet have, that we have not yet tasted, that we have yet to lay our eyes on, but we're expecting it with certainty as we look out toward the future. In addition, in verse 23, Paul says that we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Verse 19, Paul says, creation is also waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Throughout Romans 8, to wait is to hope, and to hope is to wait. For what we do not yet see, what we have not yet possessed, what we have not yet tasted with our tongues, what we have not yet beheld with our eyes, for what we have not yet heard with our ears, hope is awaiting waiting. But it's not a passive waiting. Typically, when we think of waiting, we think of passivity, right? We think of waiting in line at a restaurant with a screaming three-year-old for tables to be cleared out for us to get a seat. That's what we think of when we think of waiting, passively just biding time until our table becomes available. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. He doesn't have in mind a passivity, but an active waiting. For instance, whenever you think of, uh, when you think of working at your job, if, you're, if you've got a job right now, right, you think of working at your job and you're working at your job and you're working at your job in hope that you might get a what? Promotion maybe, or you might get a raise potentially. And so you're waiting as you labor, as you work, as you're waiting for that promotion or as you're waiting for that increase in salary. Or if you're in school right now, if you're a student and your hope is to get a diploma or a degree, right? To walk the stage, shake the person's hand who has been administrating all of the stuff of the academy that you've been participating in. And they're going to hand you a piece of paper, all right, that says you finished, right? you have a hope, but you don't wait passively for that, you wait actively for that as you're engaged in study and finishing assignments and turning in papers and working on projects. It's an active waiting, right? Hope is an active activity that we engage in. It's a verb that we carry out. Some of you have experience with adoption in the room, and so as you're waiting, you're hoping to adopt a child, and you're waiting for that, that referral from the adoption agency, right? You're you're not waiting passively, you're waiting actively because you're filling out paperwork and you're going through all kinds of studies and you're uh, paying money, right? You're working in fundraising in order to help afford and fund this adoption. It's not a passive waiting, it's an active waiting. But in addition, it's not just an active waiting, it's a certain waiting. Paul says, it's a cert- there's a certainty to our waiting that's much different right if i were to tell you this morning stand up before you and say listen i am next in line to the throne of france as a king that's right baby right i'm gonna be crowned one day when the when the king dies i'm the next guy who's gonna sit on that throne and hold that scepter and wear that crown and don that robe Right? I'm waiting to be installed as the king. The person who's next in line to be coordinated as king is waiting for that. It's not the uncertainty of an election, right? We're waiting for all the districts to report and all the polls to come back. But there's a certainty. There's an uncertainty with election because you don't know who's gonna be elected into office, but with a king, you know who's gonna be installed on the throne, Paul says there's a certainty to our waiting, not an uncertainty, not a wishing for something to take place, but we're waiting for it with certainty. But not only is it active, and not only is it certain, but also hope is expectant. In other words, we're waiting, Paul says, for something that we have not yet seen, that we do not yet have. And here, Paul is, is man, he is blasting the prosperity guys at this point, okay? Because he's saying, listen, listen, If you had it already, you would not be hoping for it. If it was yours right now in your tangible grip, then you would not be waiting for something in the future. Paul says, hope is expectant. You're looking out onto the horizon for something better than today, something more glorious than your current experience. See, hope is an active, certain, and expectant waiting. And the people of God throughout all of history have been a people who have waited and waited and waited with hope. For instance, let me show you in Luke chapter two. When Jesus is born, he's presented at the temple. And as he's presented at the temple, there's two people there in the temple. An old God named Simeon and an old lady named Anna. And they have a few things to say about Jesus whenever he's presented in the temple. In Luke 2, 25 and following, it says, now there was a man named in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him that the Holy, by the Holy Spirit, That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, those who are far from God, and a glory for your people Israel, those who have participated in the covenants throughout redemptive history. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What was Simeon doing, though? Back up in verse 25. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, for the promises, the prophecies, and predictions about Jesus' arrival to come to pass. He was waiting. He was hoping. He was looking out on the horizon. And then Anna Verse thirty six. There was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty four. Right? Do the math on that. Seventy seven years. No, that's a long time. I don't know how old she was when she was widowed. That was my bad. But still. A long time. And what does the text say? She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to speak and give thanks to God and speak of of him, of Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. God's people throughout history have always been a people who looked forward with anticipation, expectation, certainty, hope, and they waited. Oh, and they waited. They waited. The saints of God in the Old Testament waited for Jesus' first arrival. Now what does Paul say that we are waiting for in Romans chapter eight? Listen to the three things that he says we're waiting for. First, he says we are waiting for the redemption, the fullness of Redemption the fullness of the experience of being redeemed. In verses 23 to 24, Paul says, the hope in which we were saved and for which we eagerly and patiently are waiting is the redemption of our bodies. Now, what does it mean to redeem something in Bible times? It meant that something was held in captivity or bondage. It was enslaved or perhaps owned by another and you paid the price to have it released. Have it released. And perhaps the prototypical experience of redemption throughout all the scriptures is found in the book of Exodus whenever God comes and he crushes Pharaoh and he releases his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt and he leads them toward the land of promise, something on the horizon, what they were waiting for. So to redeem something was to release it from bondage, to release it from slavery. And Paul says, what we are waiting for, the hope in which we were saved is that these bodies would be redeemed. They would be released, but released from what? What would our bodies be released from? What Paul is saying here is at least this, that what we are waiting for is for our bodies to be released from the decay and death that ensued as a curse resulting from the fall. So we're waiting For these bodies to be released from the curse of decay and the curse of death. Right? We're waiting for a body in which there's no more aches of aging. (laughs) And listen, the closer I creep to 40, the more of those I begin to feel every morning when I wake up. There are some of you who are well beyond 40, you say, Listen, brother, it doesn't get any better than this. Enjoy what you got now, right? The aches of aging begin to set in as you progress in years. We're waiting for a body with no more aches, released from decay. We're waiting for eyes that work without contacts, without glasses, without corrective lenses, without surgeries. That allows us to see crystal clarity, released from decay. We're waiting for ears that work without implants or hearing aids. Listen, I was with my family over the course of the last week, like many of you were. My dad's getting to a point now where if you want to talk to him, man, you got to holler because he is not hearing everything that you're saying if you're talking in a normal tone of voice, right? And some of you might be there where what what you used to be able to hear is not at the level that you're able to hear now. And you're waiting for ears that work. Or you're waiting for no more broken bones and casts and x-rays and MRIs. You're waiting for no more developmental disorders. You're waiting for no more arthritis or soft tissue injuries. Waiting. For no more masses, or tumors, or memory lapses, or anxiety, or malignant cells. You're waiting for the body to be released from decay and the curse of the fall. A world where there is no sickness, there is no pain, there are no longer any tears, there is no death, because death has fully and finally been defeated and overthrown at the return of the Lord Jesus. We're waiting for the release and redemption of these bodies, the fullness of that. What else does Paul say we're waiting for? He also says we're waiting for freedom from sin. For the fullness of our redemption, but also for freedom from sin. If you go back into verse 17, Paul says there at the end of that paragraph, in verse 17 of Romans 8, he says that the path to glory and to glorification with Christ is winds through the thorny underbrush of suffering. He says, if we suffer with him, we'll also be glorified with him. Now, what does it mean to be glorified with Jesus? What does it mean to be glorified? It means at least this. It means at least this, that those who trust and treasure in Jesus and those who cling to him, even in the midst of the most intense and painful sufferings that this life can dispense, those who cling to him and don't suffer against him in rebellion, but suffer with him and holding fast to him in the midst of whatever pain or heartache that you might have to encounter or endure in this life. It means that one day you'll experience the glory of becoming like him. You'll be glorified as he is glorified. To share in Jesus' glory as well means at least that there is a day that's coming where we will be free not only from sin's penalty and power, but also from its presence in our lives. See, to be glorified means that one day our fight with sin will be over. That our struggle against temptation will be over. To be glorified, to be free from sin means that one day all of our tendencies to find our satisfaction and significance and security and something or someone other than Jesus Christ will come to an end as every idol will be torn down. To be free from sin means that one day the presence of lust and pornography will be eradicated. To be free from sin means that one day the greed and covetousness that consumes our hearts and souls will be crushed under the weight of glory. To be free from sin means we'll be free from the presence of gossip and slander to make ourselves look like something that we are not by making other people seem to be something that they are not. One day, we'll be free from the presence of injustice and every form of abuse. Abuse of authority, of sexual abuse, child abuse, spousal abuse, every form of abuse and every form of injustice. One day we'll be free from hatred and persecution. One day we'll be free from racism and genocide. And we're waiting, we're waiting right now through the finished work, atoning atoning work of Jesus Christ. We are indeed free from sin's power. We don't have to give ourselves over to it any longer and we're indeed free from sin's penalty. We no longer suffer. Those who are in Christ no longer have to suffer under the just wrath of God on account of sin. But for those who are in Christ, we're not yet free from sin's presence and you know that, don't you? (laughs) Yeah, I know that. My wife knows that. My kids know that. But there's a day that's coming in which even sin's presence will be wiped away. And we're all waiting for that. For the day in which no one sins against us, it causes all kinds of heartache, and we sin against no one, inflicting wounds and pain upon them. Paul says we're waiting for freedom from sin to be glorified with Christ. A third thing that Paul says that we're waiting for is this. And I think we gotta caution ourselves here because typically, this is, this is about as far as we get most often, right, we get to this, man, it'll be incredible. We'll have these bodies that work amazingly, right? There's no more crazy elbow going on, all right? There's no more squinty eyes happening There's I can hear, I can walk, I can leap, I can jump, I can run, right? A two point a two and a half minute mile, right, with this glorified body. I I can have this incredible body where no one will inflict pain upon me, and I won't inflict pain upon anyone else, and I can enjoy all of eternity playing golf on grass that is green and rich, on golf courses where the norm is no longer. Right, A couple of pars and a birdie mixed in with a bunch of bogeys and double bogeys. But now I'll be able to play, and the the norm will be birdies and eagles and a couple of pars mixed in. I'll be able to fish in lakes where there are 18-pound bass. And I'll be able to hunt in woods where there are 18-point bucks all over the place. Right, And my arrows never go off track. They never hit a tree and skip to the left. I'll be able to shop where everything is always on clearance. That'll be a glorious day. And oftentimes, many times, we stop short of what true Christian hope also entails. Because we would say, I would be content with all of that, even without God. If I just had a body that worked, and I can enjoy all of eternity to doing the things that I love to do here on this earth, and if God were not present, it would not be. I would not be disappointed. Oh, but Paul won't let us get away with that. Because Paul says we're not only waiting for the redemption of our bodies, we're not only waiting for freedom from sin, but we're also waiting for the fullness of God. The fullness of God. I want you to look at what he says In verse 23, Paul says that the object of our hope is God from whom we have received, he says, the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, what in the world does Paul mean by the first fruits of the Spirit? Here's what he means. Right? The offering of the first fruits in the Old Testament was an offering that as the crops, the grain and fruit came in from the fields, they would bring the first fruits, the choicest portions of the harvest, the initial portions of the harvest into the temple and offer them up to God as an image or a picture or symbolic of the fact that God owned everything and that we were giving everything over to him. But here Paul turns the table. And listen, if, if, if we don't understand this, we're going to right past this verse and not see its incredible implications. Paul turns the tables. He says, "It's no what we're waiting for, what we're waiting for is the fullness of God because here Paul says, it's not us who are giving the first fruits, but God who has given the first fruits. The first fruits of what? His spirit, that we taste of his spirit here, here, here and now in this life. But Paul says, the the full harvest is yet to come. That God has given his his spirit as a first fruit, as a sign and a pledge, a down payment of everything else that's gonna come in the future as the first fruits, saying the fullness of God, everything that I am and have will be yours. And I will give myself to you fully. Paul says that you're waiting for the redemption of your bodies and you're waiting for freedom from sin, but you're also waiting for the fullness of God without which redemption and release from decay would not be possible. Freedom from sin would not be possible. Paul says what you and I are waiting for is a full, unfiltered, 24 karat radiance of the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. Like what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, when he talks about beholding the unveiled glory of the Lord face to face rather than as a dim reflection in a mirror. Not what Moses saw back in Exodus where he said, God, let me see your glory. And God says, listen, kind of like, a, a, was it Jack Nicholson or Tom Cruise? I can't remember which one. Like, you can't handle it, right? You can't handle it. You can't handle the truth. You can't handle the fullness of my glory. So I'm gonna hide you behind a rock and I'm gonna put my hand over you and I'm gonna pass by. So when my face passes by, I'll remove my hand so you can see the backside of my radiance and beauty and majesty and glory. And the Bible says, even when Moses came down from that experience, his face was beaming because he had been with God. But God said to Moses, you can't see me face to face. But listen, listen, If you're waiting, that's what what you're waiting for. The full 24 karat radiance of God's glory face-to-face, not in a mirror. We're waiting for the day when the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven in Revelation chapter 21, and there's no need for lamps or candles in it any longer because God himself will be its light, and the lamp will be the lamb. That's what we're waiting for. So when we look out on the horizon, that's what we're waiting for. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're, with certainty, we're hoping in. Now you might ask the question, so what? Right? So what? We're waiting to be released from decay and death. We're waiting to be free from the presence of sin. We're waiting for a full, unfiltered glimpse of God's face. So what? What does that do for me today? Let me tell you two things it does for you today. The first one is this. It's a very valid question. The first one is this. Is it arms you and I to fight sin with hope? It arms us to fight against sin with hope. See, so often in our lives, when we we wage war against sin, we wage war against sin with looking back at the cross and saying, Jesus' bloody body is mangled there for you. But we don't often look forward to what Jesus will do in the future to make you holy forever. And one of the armaments that you have to put in your tool belt to fight against sin is a robust hope on the horizon. See, apart from it, you may live with a great degree of gratitude for what God has done in the past, but with no expectation for what he will do in the future. All right, Paul says in early, early in Romans 8, when he, in verses 12 through 17, he says, listen, all those who put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit will live. And then he goes right on into a discussion of our hope and waiting and so as we wait and look forward to freedom from sin and being glorified with Christ, then we fight against sin tooth and nail here. Right? Because hope always, what we're hoping for, what we're expecting always in the future always shapes the present, doesn't it? Always shapes the present. Let me, let me illustrate to you this way. Right um, At the end of this football season, Okay, we're kind of winding down, getting to the home stretch. The Cowboys are about to tank, okay? Um, As we move that direction, here's what's happening. There are certain teams that are thinking to themselves, we are completely out of it. There is no chance that we will have any, any shot at making the playoffs, right? Which is what they were preparing to do back in March at OTAs, and in June and July at mini camps, and in August at training camp. They go, right now we have no shot. We're like three and 10, okay? So so there's no chance for us to make the playoffs. So so what happens? Because they have have a certain expectation about what's coming for them in January. What happens? Sometimes they tend to fall apart in the present, don't they? And they just kind of quit trying. They quit working. They quit trying to execute well on their routes or on their blocks. There's no hope. But listen, when March rolls around next year and they begin to participate in optional team activities and they roll into the summer with mini camps and they roll into the end of the summer with training camp, every single NFL team has an expectation and a hope. They're longing to be playing in January and that first weekend in February. And so they labor. And they lift and they execute and they run routes and they throw passes over and over and over again because what they're hoping for in the future is shaping what they're doing in the present. And if you're hoping to be free from sin in the future, then you fight it with everything that is within you in the present. And if you know for certain you will be free from sin in the future, then you fight it with everything that you have in the present. Richard Sibbs was a Puritan pastor in the 17th century, and he said this. He said, The life of a Christian is wondrously ruled in this world by consideration and meditation of the life of another world. See, the reason some of us are struggling so deeply with sin and we're losing battles is because we are not thinking about what is to come And allowing what is to come to shape here and now. And to arm us to fight with vigilance against sin. So you're fighting against lust? In your fight against lust, are you only looking back at the cross and seeing Jesus' bloody body? Or in your fight against lust, are you looking forward to him returning on a white horse followed by armies on white horses with robes of fine linen that are pure and white to make you unstained in your thoughts and your actions forever? That's hope. And so you fight lust now because you're looking forward to being free from it one day. Anyone who looks forward to be free from it one day doesn't just give themselves over to it. Are you looking forward to being free from greed and covetousness one day? You don't just look back on what God has given, but you look forward to what he will give. Paul says in Romans chapter eight that we are heirs. What are heirs receive? They receive what? An inheritance. And what does God own? He owns everything. And there's a day that is coming, if you are in Christ, that we'll all inherit it together so you don't have to fight and claw to get yours today because your inheritance is coming so you can be radically generous with your possessions. Are you fighting greed and covetousness with hope? You gotta fight sin with hope. The second thing that Paul says, and we'll we'll land the plane, is this. He says you gotta endure suffering by hope. You gotta endure suffering by hope. In verse 18, Paul says that our hope informs our present response to suffering. He says the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. In relation to our suffering, Paul basically says this, all our groaning is not worth comparing to the glory that is coming. And Paul is not speaking this in some hollow seminary classroom, right? He's not just kind of offering up a proposition. This is true. It is true. But Paul is speaking from deep experience, in Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 28, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journey, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger... In the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger in from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul says, I'm in danger everywhere that I go. I've been shipwrecked, drifting at sea at night, not knowing where I was. And he says, if that wasn't enough, I have this daily burden for all of you. Paul's not speaking in a seminary classroom dulling out propositions. He's speaking from real life experiences and he says that all of our sufferings, all of our sufferings will one day look like a five watt incandescent bulb compared to the brilliance of a sunrise. And there are some of you who need to hear that this morning. There are some of you who need to hear that the hope of seeing God face to face and being transformed to be like Him by beholding Him is not worth comparing with anything that you are encountering today. It's not worth comparing with a life-altering diagnosis. Paul says, all our sufferings are not worth comparing. A life-altering diagnosis, a life-altering divorce, experiencing persecution and hatred, being called intolerant, bigoted and unrefined and archaic the loss of relationships that part ways over Jesus, a violent death at the hands of terrorists who cut off your head. It's not worth comparing, Paul says, to the glory that will be revealed to us, to what we will see, a lifestyle-altering loss of a job, the heartbreaking rebellion of a child, the devastating disengagement of a parent who is not involved, who is not present, the crashing of every market on the face of the globe and losing everything that you've saved over the course of your life. The depression that wrestles us to the ground and tends to hold us there. Inflation and poor healthcare, the moral collapse of our nation, even the invasion of zombies is not worth comparing, I know some of you are preppers, is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Some of you are in the midst of intense suffering right now. There is hope. Oh, there is hope. One day, that tumor, one day that child who is wayward will look like a five-watt incandescent bulb compared to the glory and brilliance of Jesus Christ in the fullness, in the fullness of who he is. So wait well. Endure suffering with hope. Fight sin with hope. Because there's a day that's coming where your body will be released from decay. Death will be defeated. Sin will be eradicated. And you'll see him face to face. So whatever other expectations or anxieties are weighing you this season, Lay them down and look forward on the horizon to all that is to come. Let's pray together. Father, we come today thanking you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ so that not only can we wait well in the midst of suffering and not only can we fight sin with hope, but that all these things, all these things, even as Paul says in Romans chapter five, all our sufferings go to serve us They produce things in us that are good and holy, like endurance and character. So, Father, help us to wait and wait well, to fight with all vigilance the sin that would so easily entangle, to endure with great perseverance whatever suffering we might find ourselves in. As we look forward to the great hope on the horizon, we pray in Jesus' name.